Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, I think you know this is this is Holy Week. We had Diane did the uh, the great Palm Sunday story with the stuffies, and then the scripture reading was on uh, the Last Supper. And you know, there are many churches that they go to church quite a few days this week because you got Monday, Thursday, and you've got Good Friday. And man, if you're Episcopalian, you also go to church on Holy Saturday. Uh, but we we don't have all that much liturgy in our own tradition. We have sometimes joined with people for Good Friday, uh, but not not in these pandemic times. So I thought, well, since it is, you know, like the most important week of our uh, most significant holiday week in the Christian calendar here that I would just maybe this will be a little bit thick, but I am just going to kind of go through the week so that we can remember um, the story together of of what happened between Palm Sunday leading up until Easter, right? And we know it's a story that, as Diane showed us, it begins with Jesus riding on a donkey down the streets of the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. And as he was riding, crowds of people were lining the roads and they were waving palm branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. I see you've got this real upbeat kind of party atmosphere that's going on. It's a story that starts with this enthusiastic support of Jesus. You know, so many people just adored him. You know, he was a rabbi who just traveled around preaching love. And one time when somebody asked him, you know, like, what, what's the most important commandment? Jesus told people it's to love God and to love your neighbor as yourselves and that everything had to fall under the rubric of those two commands, right? This is the highest ethic. And that way of thinking and of teaching was coming from a long stream of teaching in his Jewish tradition, right? This love your neighbor as yourself originates in Leviticus chapter 19. And so the people in the crowd that day, they were crying out in support of Jesus. They were like, man, this guy is saying things that we need to hear. And they had come from near and far to Jerusalem to come and celebrate the feast of the Passover together and to worship at the big new temple that was at the heart of the city. And so as they flowed into the city, they gave Jesus their clothes to sit on and they laid their cloaks on the ground before him. But we were soon to discover just how fickle crowds can be. Right on Sunday, the mob was shouting Hosanna and by that Friday, they were shouting, crucify him. Right, so what happened in those few days between? Well, tensions were high in the city. Rome occupied Israel, and so every time there were large gatherings of people that would come into the town, it would spark fear, and it would highlight the unease of that political situation. And so it became ripe for violence and for confusion and for accusations. And so as Jesus was spending time in the city that week, there were two charges that were um, leveled against him. He was accused of blasphemy. Let me copy and paste this just so we have that clearly here. He was accused of blasphemy and of subversion against Rome. And because of these accusations, he was called to appear in public before a Roman ruler, whose name was Pontius Pilate, to answer for those. And then when he did, we were told that the crowd, let me put this in from Luke 23, 
began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. Right? And surely not everyone in the crowd felt confident of those accusations, but on the whole, they were mobilizing around them. And that started a process whereby Jesus became a scapegoat. I put it into the chat there, a scapegoat is a person who's blamed for the wrongdoings, the mistakes, the faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency. Right, so scapegoating, we know, means sacrificing an innocent person so that a group feels better about its own anxieties and fears. And a lot of the Bible is actually devoted to unmasking how a process of scapegoating happens. And once you see it, you start to see it everywhere, right? From the story, you've got Cain and Abel, you've got Joseph, you've got David, you've got Jonathan, you've got Jeremiah, you've got Daniel, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. None of those are in my notes. I'm just like thinking as I, as I go here. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. The Bible is highly concerned about innocent people becoming targets of violence in order to appease larger social fears, right? And the way that the Bible approaches these stories of scapegoats is unique among ancient world literature, right? It tells the stories of the scapegoats themselves and not the stories of the oppressors, right? So they don't provide justifications for the harm or the death or the exile of the scapegoats. And it's not hard to become a scapegoat, if you're, especially if you're in a, a really anxious social system, even if that's an anxious family system, right? We know that people can become sort of called the black sheep of the family is often a scapegoating dynamic that's happening. And as we see from the Holy Week story, you can become a scapegoat pretty quickly. Like that process can sort of ignite quickly. And I could speak from some experience, I've been a scapegoat. And I became one because I was a female leader, um, single, even for most of that time. I think that made me even more different. And then a queer one on top of it in a church system that was hyper anxious about gender and sexuality and purity and patriarchy and all that, all that stuff. And it didn't have the tools or the will to kind of sit with the stories of the people being harmed by some of the longstanding beliefs and toxic structures. Right. So instead of dealing with that stuff, it's easier to then kind of focus attention um, on a person or a group of people. And I know many of you um, at our church probably became scapegoats of some kind or another in a prior church system. Not all of you, um, but many of you who find us participated or were part of um, becoming a scapegoat because of your gender, maybe your sexual orientation or because you've allied yourself with scapegoats, right? kind of defending them or refusing to accept policies that harm them. And it doesn't just play out in churches or about sexuality, right? Scapegoating dynamics are everywhere. Um, they're in so many places in American culture because we live in a highly anxious culture that has a lot of unresolved issues. And I would say ours are especially around race, socioeconomics, gender, and sexuality. And we are really good at finding scapegoats that can help us sort of temporarily quell our anxieties. We are a culture that is just rife with this. 
because that's what scapegoating helps with, right? It, it briefly sort of quells the fears and the tensions that can threaten group unity. And so instead of all against all, and I know in the last few years, especially, we have felt this in our culture, right? This idea that feels like it's all against all, and it becomes all against one when you identify a scapegoat or try to identify one. So with Jesus, in spite of the accusations that were made against him, we know that neither Pilate nor Herod could come up with anything with which that they could legally charge him. So Pilate, the Roman ruler, he, he knew Jesus was innocent of these two accusations, especially of plotting a revolt. And he says so three times in the Gospel of John, right? John is very clear that Jesus was innocent. But even so, the crowd of people who so vehemently cheered Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here we are a few days later, they're now convinced that he needed to die. And so the Roman authorities dressed Jesus the scapegoat like a buffoon. And they gave him a false crown and they put a purple robe on him and they beat him until he looked nothing like them. And they disfigured him and mocked him and paraded him around town for everyone to see. And the more different, right, the more other that he appeared, the easier it was to dehumanize him and to kill him. And then they forced Jesus to carry his own cross until he couldn't carry it any longer. And we're told that a man named Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene is in modern day Libya, um, was then asked to come forward and help Jesus carry his cross, his burden. And so in that way, Simon symbolically became an ally. Right? I really admire or look to Simon of Cyrene as like one of the saints of allies. And I think one of the most important things that we can remember when we approach this story every year is that God didn't kill Jesus. Right? I think that's, that's a question that comes up in a lot of Christian circles is why would God kill his own son? I don't think the story tells us that God did that. I think we humans killed Jesus, right? And so through a Christian lens, Jesus became the representative scapegoat for all of humanity for all time. That both Jew and Gentile alike, representing all of humankind, right? All of humanity is what's being represented in the Gospels, executed Jesus. That we took an innocent man, accused and condemned and sacrificed him because of our sin and our collective fears and anxieties and inabilities to do reconciliation. And so when the scripture tells us that Jesus bore the sin of the world, he was bearing our projected anxieties and disloyalties and violence and shame. And he represents all of the innocent victims, past, present, and future, who have ever been excluded or harmed or exiled or murdered for the sake of this process. Right? And this is the dynamic that was uncovered in the Torah, right? all the way back in Leviticus, when the Jewish priests, they would symbolically place the sins of the nation onto an actual goat who was then released into the desert to carry those sins away, right? That's where the term scapegoat actually originates, is from Leviticus, right? So the goat carried the sins of the people. And in the same way, human scapegoats bear the weight of the collective sin and fear of the people around them. And so Jesus as the representative scapegoat for the world bore our sins, the sins of humanity. 
And then the words that Jesus spoke as he hung on the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And when he said that, he was speaking to God concerning all of humankind, right? We don't know what we're doing when we do this. It's so often hidden from us. There's a, a hallmark of the scapegoating cycle of violence is the complete and utter belief held by oppressors that they're innocent. And in fact, they are convinced that they are in fact the actual victims, right? And in the moment of his execution, Jesus is hanging on the cross, extending grace and mercy for those who are harming him, right? He forgave them. So the communal sacrifice of Jesus, the scapegoat, it brought a, a quiet, a hushed relief to those who were watching it happen. And the ritual killing marked the finale after a week of intense turbulence, right? It started with utter joy and it gradually turned to this angry mob violence. And it was such an intense week that after Jesus died, after he was killed, the bystanders simply beat their breasts and walked away. And those who knew him, including the women from the Galilee, they stood at a distance in silence watching. And then preparations for the burial of the body started and they were carried out until evening because it was the Sabbath. They didn't want to leave the bodies on the crosses through the next day, through the Saturday. And so there was silence, followed by the dutiful cleanup of the mess that they had wrought. And so Jesus's death in many ways is unremarkable, just in that it bears resemblance to the stories of just so many other scapegoats throughout history. And that includes the many people who were also literally crucified before and after Jesus by the Romans, right? The Romans crucified thousands of people. And yet his story remains remarkable and that we're told that he doesn't stay sacrificed, right? That he was crucified and he died, but he was resurrected. And we won't pick up that thread until next Sunday on Easter, but I just want to note that the incorrect human verdict of scapegoats, the verdict that says you're guilty and it's coupled with a death sentence or exile or whatever, that sentence was overturned by God because it's not a just sentence. Right? God is on the side of the oppressed and the scapegoated. And it's no coincidence that the events of the Last Supper play out in the middle of this week. Right, the night before Jesus was put to death, the story that was told during Passover Seder every year and still is, is the story of the Jewish people escaping slavery in Egypt and how God liberated them. Right, it's a story of liberation from oppression. And so as Jesus broke the bread and he poured the wine for that Passover meal, he drew a comparison to his own body, which was soon to be broken, right, and his blood, which was soon to be shed. And he told his friends to remember him every time they shared that meal. And that through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, that God would assure liberation for the oppressed. Right, so this is the, say, the prophetic element of the communion table and where it comes from. Right, and so when I, when I say prophetic, I just mean it, it describes the Christian hope of what a future will hold, right? A more just world 
It's an ideal that we work toward. And prophetic people and prophetic communities try to lean into what should be in order to call others into this more just and perfect world. And we do it imperfectly, but we do it as best we're able. And so we remember at the table of Jesus that everyone is welcome. And I think as 21st century people, we might not fully grasp how jarring that idea was for people in the first century along the Mediterranean there, right? This idea that women could eat with men and that the poor could eat with the rich and that Jews could eat with Gentiles and that slaves could eat with the people who were free and that educated could eat with the uneducated and that they were declared family. Right? That in God's good realm, there's an equality of people. And so at the table of Jesus, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your level of belief. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter who you are, that you're welcome. And that no one is allowed to impose their own table rules on anybody else. And no one is allowed to be sacrificed for the sake of group peace, right? God said that way of living is over. And remember that until I come again, remember my death until I come again, that way of living is over. If the group is anxious, we have to do the deep work of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, the tools of which are found in our tradition. And if a group can't agree, then we can at least agree to disagree, right? And allow Jesus to be the ultimate judge, refraining from imposing our own judgment. And the only table rule is that we in turn must welcome others, right? that we must forgive others as we're forgiven, and we have to understand that none of us has done anything to earn a place at this table, right? It's what we call grace. And that we have to extend that grace and that mercy that we've received to others, just as Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we built this ritual into our lives that originates from this Holy Week story that we remember every, week, every year. And we build this into our lives so that it becomes part and parcel of who we are. Right, trying to undo our instincts to scapegoat. And instead, this becomes our instinct. It becomes our reflection or our reflex toward others. Right? It helps us to understand deep down that without Jesus, we might not recognize our own propensity to enact this sort of violence or sin against others, to exclude and to participate in these larger forces of accusation in the world. Right? The word Satan just means accuser. Right, so when we talk about participating in things that are satanic, it's participating in those group dynamics of accusation. And we just remember that we are wanted at this family table, that no matter if you've been a scapegoat or if you've been mistreated by other people in the Christian family, you are wanted at this table, even though every single one of us is still a work in progress. Right. I liked what Bishop Tutu said. I'm not really using the Book of Joy for this for this week, but I did like a quote of his in there. He said, we're here on this earth to learn to be more loving and compassionate beings. Right? We're here on this earth to become more loving and compassionate beings. And we do that in part or remind ourselves how to do that through our rituals and through remembering the story of Jesus the scapegoat being put to death and of God declaring that not okay, right? And so we continue this journey to become more like God as we 
learn to live um, and love together in community. And so with that, I know we usually do a meditation. We take some time of silence or guided meditation. And I thought this morning, since it's Holy Week, and since it's a little bit of a, a heavier week as we remember the events leading up to Easter, that we would just take a couple of minutes to let the Spirit talk to us about these about these events that took place, whether it was the, the Last Supper or actually the crucifixion of Jesus. I invite you to just sort of invite the Spirit to stir whatever God would like to say to you in this space. So I'll let you know when the time is up, but just get comfortable, take some breaths, come Holy Spirit. Jesus, we're sorry that you had to bear the collective weight of humanity's sin. And I thank you that you submitted yourself to that process in order to show us, to show us what we do. I ask that you would help us to see the places where we participate in that and to help us to heal from the places where we've received wounds from that. For those of us or the times when we've been scapegoated, that you would help us to remember that we are beloved, that we are worthy, that you accept us and embrace us and want us whole, and that there's nothing inherently about us that would ever keep us from your love and from including including an acceptance in your family, God. And ask for your forgiveness for those places where we've participated in other scapegoating, like maybe as the oppressors, and ask that you would continue to open our eyes to the ways that we participate in those systems. Help us, Lord, to have wisdom to understand the real hard tools of listening, of repentance, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and that we would be able to enact those tools and to sit in those gray areas where it's not necessarily clear what resolution needs to come to whatever disagreements are in our families or in our lives or in our culture or our societies. Lord, we need your wisdom and we need your ability to sit with the messiness of it all. We ask that your spirit would be with us 
and that we would learn to do this more perfectly together as a church community. In the name of your son, Jesus, we say thank you. Amen.